Hey, real quick, would you like to join me for a fun and super practical challenge to increase your online visibility? The Visibility Kickstarter Challenge is hosted by my friend Alina Vincent, who, if you don't know, she is the queen of online challenges. <clears throat> and that means that this is going to be one of the most actionable, value-packed, and fast-to-implement challenges that you have ever been a part of. I recently used her challenge method in my last launch, and it was the most effective challenge we have ever run, and it was easier than any, ever, any challenge we've ever run uh, as well. It is completely free, so if you want to join me, I'll be there. Head over to jenlaner.com forward slash 084 to sign up. And again, that's jenlaner, L-E-H-N-E-R.com forward slash 084. Hey guys, it's Gary Bay Nerdshop, and you're listening to the Front Row Entrepreneur Podcast with our girl, Jen. You're listening to the Front Row Entrepreneur Podcast, episode number 18. Our guest today is recognized as one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world. She's an expert on disruptive innovation and personal disruption, specifically a framework which she codifies in the critically acclaimed book, Disrupt Yourself putting the power of disruptive innovation to work, and in her new book, Build an A-Team, play to their strengths and lead them up the learning curve. She developed her proprietary framework and diagnostics after having co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen. This framework is complemented by a deep understanding of how executives create and destroy value, having spent nearly a decade as an institutional investor ranked equity analyst on Wall Street. In addition to her work as a speaker and advisor, she is one of Marshall Goldsmith's original cohort of 25 for the 100 Coaches Project, is a coach for Harvard Business School's executive education program, frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, is a LinkedIn influencer and hosts the daily Disrupt Yourself podcast. I was fortunate enough to be coached by her during the earliest days of my business, and she has been a true mentor to me over the years. Dear listeners, it is such a pleasure to introduce you to Whitney Johnson. Hey, Whitney, welcome to the show. Hi, Jen. I am so happy to be here. All right, Whitney. So on this podcast, we talk to front row people and front row people are people who believe that life is too short to take a back seat in life or in business. They're people who step up to life's challenges. They don't shrink away. They're all in. And when they see an opportunity, they don't say, why me? They say, why not me? And I really cannot think of anyone who is more front row than you are. Your story is so inspiring. Will you share it with our listeners? Absolutely. But before I do that, I want to just say, I think you're a front row person. I think this podcast is so aptly described as I think about when I first met you about six years ago. So I love that you're doing this podcast. It just seems like the perfect, perfect venue for who you are and what you do. So I just wanted to say that now. Well, thank you. Happy to share my story. I I think I, I, sometimes I think I'm a sort of an improbable front row person. I'll start there. I don't know that I set out to be that way. Um, I grew graduated from um, from college with a degree in music and um, didn't really know what I was going to do. I kind of had this vague sense of what I would do, but it was super vague. Like, I'm going to be married and I'm going to have children and I don't know exactly what I'll do. 
But um, my husband and I, we moved to New York right after I graduated. He was getting his PhD in, in microbiology at Columbia. And then something really important happened. And I think this is when I started to move to the front row of my life, which is we get to New York. I'm absolutely terrified. I still remember driving across the George Washington Bridge into Manhattan, and it was just scary. And um, I, we had, we lived in a 19th floor apartment, and truly, I would not have left that apartment except that I had to go out and get a job because we needed to eat. And so I go out, I find a job, I get a, a job as a secretary for a retail broker. Um, best job that I can get because it's I'm a woman and I have a degree in music and it's the late 80s and so that's just what you do but every day I would go to work and there was this big bullpen across the seat from where I was sitting and it was a bunch of guys aspiring masters of the universe this is very like working girl liars poker bonfire the vanities all these guys you know like trying to open up accounts and they get on the phone it's total hard sell like you know doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that you should be buying this stock and they'd say things like throw down your pom-poms and get in the game i'm hearing that over and over again and and early on, I was like actually kind of offended because I was a cheerleader in high school. But then I hearing it over and over again, I'm like, okay, wait a second. I'm going to be working for a while. My husband's PhD is going to take seven years. I can make X or I can make 10X. And I finally had this moment where I thought I have to throw down my pom-poms. So I start taking business courses at night. Um, I study accounting. I study finance because I had never studied any of that in college. And then I have this boss who believes in me and I get a shot and I'm able to move from being a secretary to a banker. And that rarely happens if you know anything about um, working on Wall Street. And so from there, I, um, I moved to being a banker. I did that for several years. And then there was a big merger shakeup. And this time I didn't actually get I got pushed off the front row into equity research, into the back row, like, what do I do with this? And um, found that I was actually really good at equity research. I was really good at picking stocks. And so I find myself back in the front row of my career, do that for about eight years, and then decide, okay, it's time for me to do something new. I leave Wall Street. At this point, I've discovered disruptive innovation. I've discovered this idea, this theory that a silly little thing can take over the world, understand that that's kind of like what my life is like. Um, I apply this idea to products and investing, but then discover that it actually applies to people. And so ended up co-founding an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. Did that for about five years, then sold my stake. And now I'm doing what I'm doing, which is chasing down this idea of how do you build a framework of personal disruption? And how do you um, use this to build a business? And I think in your vernacular, really, the question for me is, is when you're disrupting yourself, you're actually always choosing to move from the back row to the front row. I love it. Yeah, thanks for making that tie in. Absolutely. And disruption became... Disruption, I mean, we all throw that word around now, but really it was born at that time with you and Clayton Christensen, right? Well, I, not me. So what I would say is, I mean, I would love that if it were me, but it's not. So he, he wrote um, his doctoral thesis when he was in business school in the early 90s. And he codified this theory of disruptive innovation in his book, The Innovator's Dilemma. It's a seminal book. Where my contribution is, is this realization that this theory that he was applying to products. And then as we worked together, we were applying to investing 
actually applied to people. And that at a very high level, it's a framework for managing change. And so the work that I've done or the contribution that I'm hoping that I'm making is by creating a framework of personal disruption that allows you to scale an organization to build a team um, or just manage your career. And so that's that's the work that I'm doing is building on the shoulders of of him as a giant who he actually is. He's six foot eight, um, oh, but wow. really building on um, the work that he's done. And very he's very much my mentor. And it's just been really a privilege to be able to learn from him. And then now I hope contribute and add to his greater body of work through the work I'm doing. Well, speaking of the work you're doing, you just published a brand new book, Build an A-Team, Play to the Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to go way back and start with your first book, Dare, Dream, Do, okay? Sure. So this is a book that I read before I ever started my business when I was still trying to figure out my path. And it was so incredibly inspiring and helpful. And I'm honestly not even sure if I'd be here right now. I mean, well, I'd be alive, but you know... (laughs) Not like yes, here you would be alive. <laughs> I would be alive, we hope. But I, I probably wouldn't be here interviewing you on this podcast. I might have taken a completely different turn. Will you talk about that book for just a minute and tell us what inspired you to write it? Yeah, absolutely. So this book, it's interesting. People talk about like books and like what what causes people to write a book and you know, what's the backstory? And the backstory for me on this this one is that I had taken the sabbatical from Wall Street. Um, at this point, our children were, I want to say, eight and four, respectively, and um, had a little bit of a break. So this is once I left Wall Street before I really started working with Clayton full time. And so I finally had a little bit of breathing room and time to talk to um, the friends or my friends and you know the parents of my children's friends, et cetera. And so I would ask this question frequently is, what's your dream? And I believed somehow deep in my soul is that I had gone out and we had gone to New York and I had achieved some dreams and I was so excited. And so here I am thinking, okay, I'm going to talk to these other women and be like, what's your dream? And I frequently would have women, and this is more geared toward women, although it's also true for men, but more in women in this particular instance, they would say to me, well, I don't have a dream. Or um, I don't know how to do the dream, but lurking in the background, lurking in the background was frequently, I don't believe it's my privilege to dream. Hmm. And that just was a punch in the gut for me because I was like, how can you believe this? I mean, I'm talking to women in many instances who were educated, who were incredibly capable. Oftentimes they were mothers with two and four and six and seven children. And they were believing that it wasn't their privilege and their birthright to go out and have a dream. Who, by the way, oftentimes had husbands who were very successful off chasing their own dreams. And I was just like, I have to do something about this. And so that was the beginning of me. I am going to build a case for why you must dream. And then that evolved where I started inviting women to share the stories of their dreams. Cause I realized that, you know, I have my dream, but you have your dream and every dream is different. Maybe your dream is to be a mother of 10 children. And what does that look like? And so this book um, was why it's important to dream. How do you figure out what your dream is and how do you do it? And in retrospect, what it was is me saying to women, I have figured out how to go out and be a ship and I want to teach you how to do that. And 
by the way, you have learned how to be a harbor. I'm watching you do this. My children are still young. I'm not quite sure how to be a harbor. I want to learn how to do this. This is me paying homage to you. So I want to teach you, but I'm also paying homage to you, to you as a person who knows how to be a harbor. I want you to learn how to be a ship. And while we're doing that, I have, who have learned how to be a ship, want to learn how to, how to be a harbor from you. And so that was the genesis of that book. I love that metaphor. Let me ask you this without like trying to turn you into psychologist, but I mean, I'm sure that there's, there's some underlying takeaway for you after talking to all these women of why it is we might not give ourselves the privilege to dream or feel like we don't have that privilege. Oh, you can totally turn me into a psychologist. I've had (laughs) years and years of therapy and I consider myself, I know enough to be dangerous. So part of what it is, is that, so I've studied union psychology and every person, well, actually you asked me a different, well, let me say two things. Every person has masculine and feminine qualities. And so men and women have masculine and feminine. So masculine is the ability to wield power to control situations. And feminine is the ability to be, to nurture. So to be a harbor and the feminine and the masculine is to be a ship. And so in our society, men sort of get pushed to be a ship and then their challenge is to grow up and figure out how to be a harbor. And oftentimes, you know, being a father, if they're, you know, religious, that tends to give them an opportunity to do that. For example, women tend to be socialized to learn how to be a harbor. And then the question is, how do they go out and learn how to be a ship? The challenge for women is that we have learned from the research there that women are only considered to be feminine in the context of their relationship with someone else and when they are giving up something for someone else. So they're, they're seeding resources, they're receiving, they're seeding time, they're seeding money, etc. And so then women get put into this double bind because what it means is that she can only be feminine if she's being a harbor, if she's trying to be a ship, which will require resources pulled from someone or something else for her, then she is suddenly unfeminine. And so for women, we have to solve that double bind. And part of the point of that book was to help women understand what was happening for us psychologically so that we could then walk through that and move forward. And you use union psychology, use the myth of psyche, et cetera, to help you think through that. And that's that's part of what you find in that book. It's not academic. It's very, very personal. It's like having a cup of hot chocolate. But those are some of the underlying um, or sort of ideological underpinnings of that book. Yeah, it is like having a cup of hot chocolate. I, I um, it was it was a wonderful book. And then so then you come out and you write Disrupt Yourself and you have a podcast by the same awesome name. That name is is so good because it's like a little bit irreverent sounding. Um, it's just a really good, it's a really good name anyway. So you, so you come out and you write this book, disrupt yourself, which for me is more of a, okay, this is a more like brass tacks, how to disrupt yourself. And the big message being that if you want to achieve your dreams or sit on the front row, you've got to be disruptive in your personal and your business life. But then the question is, how do you know when it's time to disrupt and get on the front row? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, the, the idea of disruption is you have to take a step back to slingshot forward. What I would say is, let me give you a little bit of background or not background, but I want everybody as you're thinking about this idea of, you know, how do you know when it's time to do something new is I want you to picture an S in your brain and draw an S like with your finger, do it with me as you're listening. And this is an idea of um, something that I 
I thought through as we were applying this framework of, of disruption to investing is that we use this thing called an S-curve. It was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962, and we used it to help us figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. You're at the base of the S, growth is slow. You then reach that knee of that S where growth starts to accelerate, and that's when you get like 10% of a market. And then you get to the 90% or saturation growth tapers off. And the big aha for me, and what has since become foundational in the work that I do, is that this S-curve could help us understand people. That Every single person, every time you start a new role, you start a new job, your life in general is one big S. And when you start something new, you're at the base of that S and growth is going to be slow and you won't know what you're doing. And it's this big jumble of pieces where you have to figure it all out. You know, it's going to be a slog. So that helps you not get discouraged. And then you put in the work, you move into the steep part of that S where everything is starting to really hum. Things are hard, but they're not too hard. They're easy, but not too easy. It's a steep part. You do a little, a lot happens. You're putting the pieces together. All your neurons are firing. You're competent. You're confident. You're engaged. And then you approach the top of the S. And the thing that happens at the top of the S is growth starts to slow again. It's easy, very easy, but because you're no longer learning, what we know from the neuroscience is you get bored. So to answer your question, how do you know when it's time to do something new? Are you getting bored? Are you finding yourself dialing it in? Are you finding yourself saying, there's got to be more than this? Are you finding yourself saying, everybody's saying, I've got it easy, but I'm feeling kind of cranky. I'm feeling like I need more. That's when you know you're at the top of the S and it's time for you to disrupt yourself and do something new. It's like a game of shoots and ladders. You start at the bottom, you climb to the top, and then you jump to the bottom of a new ladder. And you do that over and over again. And what we've seen from our research is that on average, you can be on a learning curve for about four years before it's time for you to cycle through and, and do something new. That's really interesting because in all the time, you know, I, I mostly deal with online businesses, online coaches, people who are trying to, to build a business online. And it seems to be that usually if people are going to make it, and this is completely unscientific, but the people that are going to stick around in their businesses and their businesses that are going to scale, it's right around year four, uh, seems to be like year three or year four. And then people sort of check out after that if it hasn't happened yet. But it's a unique sort of thing because, well, no, it's not unique. But I guess my question is, in online business, when you're trying to grow this audience, um, because it's all about really the size and relevance of your audience, um, it can take a while. And yeah. uh, it's very, very discouraging uh, for, for people. And they're getting like a thousand different messages from as least as many people. And so how do they know, like, whether they need to push through and keep going, like they're bored because they're just sick of yet another webinar where nobody shows up, or that they should keep going? Oh, such a great question, Jen. So, so there are two different questions here. So how do you know when you're at the top of a curve? So everything is actually working, but you know that because you're going to get bored and, you know, bored and complacent people get disrupted, you've got to jump to a new curve. So that's one question that you started to ask. I think the question you're asking now is a slightly different question, which is, you're actually at the low end of the curve. Like you said, no one's showing up to your webinar. And so the question you want to ask yourself, is this even the right curve? Mm -hmm. So if it's the right curve, you're going to hit that 10 to 15% and moved in the sweet spot. But what happens when you're at the low end? 
Um, so I, there are four questions that you can ask yourself to find out if you um, want, if it's time for you just to persist and keep going, or if it's time for you to consider, how do I tweak this? What do I need to do differently in order for me to find a different curve or certainly tweak it so that it becomes the right curve? And so here are the four questions that you can ask yourself. The first question is, is am I playing where no one else is playing? And what do I mean by that? So if you look at the framework of personal disruption, the very first thing you need to look at is, am I taking on market risk rather than competitive risk? So competitive risk is, you know, there's a market for what you're doing, but there's a lot of competition. And we know from the theory of disruption that the odds of success are lower when you take on competitive risk versus market risk, which is you don't know if there's a market. You don't know if there's anybody who's going to want to buy what you're doing, but there's a problem you think you can solve and it doesn't look like there's anybody playing there and it feels a lot more risky to you because it's less certain but it is in fact according to the theory less risky so are you taking a market risk are you playing where no one else is playing are you solving a problem that other people aren't solving now you've got to make sure that you're not you're looking for a painkiller not a vitamin because sometimes we think we're solving a vitamin problem where people need this they really need this they're never going to buy the thing they really need they're going to buy the thing that solves a problem that makes their pain go away around whatever it is, issue it is. So that's question number one. Are you playing where no one else is playing? Question number two is, are you playing to your strengths? We don't value what we do best. So oftentimes we start chasing something that is hard for us to do, something that we want to figure out how to do. I remember a few years ago, we had this really good idea, and it was probably 10 years ago, and it was around photo books, which would have been super awesome, and there was no one playing there, and again, this is 10 years ago, but slight problem, I'm not a photographer, so that doesn't play to my strengths. Now, I can go out and learn how to be a photographer, but I barely take pictures every day, so I'm not playing to my strengths. You've got to, if if, it, if it's going to be the right curve, it is going to be something that leverages what you do uniquely well. And that thing that you do uniquely well is likely something that is so reflexive, you do not value it. So here's how you know what that thing is. You get compliments on it all the time. If you don't know what those compliments are, because you deflect them, start writing down your compliments. You find yourself saying, that's just common sense, getting exasperated. The next time you say, everybody knows how to do this. That is another one of your strengths. And the third thing you can do is what do you think about when no one, when you don't have anything you have to think about, when you don't have to think about anything. If that thing, the, the curve you're trying to climb plays to your strengths, then it may be that it's just time for you to persist. If you're trying to chase something that you're actually not good at, then it's probably not the right curve. So that's question number two. Are you playing to your strengths and playing where no one else is playing? Because when you feel strong, you're a lot more confident playing in that place that no one else is. Third question is, is it hard but not debilitating? So you can go every day and be like, I've got to climb this mountain and this is terrifying, but I am having so much fun. If you are having fun, then it's probably still the right curve. If you find yourself come getting sick and you're dreading your work, it's probably wrong curve. Let me give you a quick example. Podcasting. When I first started podcasting two years ago, and you may have had this experience, Jen, I started doing it. 
wasn't getting a lot of listeners, not a lot of listeners, but you know what? I kind of didn't care because I love interviewing people. It was fun for me. I'm like, you know what? I love mm-hmm. doing this. It's interesting. I'm able to do research. So I'm just going to keep going because I love doing it. And there's value in it regardless of whether or not I've got lots of listeners. So that's a good example of hard, but not debilitating. Question number four, are you gaining momentum? So for example, on the webinars, if this week, you know, this webinar you did, you only had 10 people, but in the next webinar, you had 30. And then the next webinar, you had 100. In raw numbers, that's not very much. But from a momentum perspective, that's a big leap. From a percentage perspective, that's a big leap. So playing where no one's playing, playing to your strengths, hard but not debilitating, gaining momentum. If you answer yes to four of those questions or even three out of the four, then you're probably just at the low end of the learning curve and you don't have enough information to know that you should jump. You might be tweaking, but you don't have enough information to know that you should jump. If your answers are pretty much no to all of these, it's probably time for you to look at a new curve. The good news is, and this is the good news, no S curve is ever wasted. There's always going to be something that you have learned from that learning curve that you are on currently when you jump to a new learning curve. So that was a long answer, but I think I'm hoping it was it was specific enough that it will be helpful to people. I think it was very helpful. And I want to revisit or just um just comment on the play to your strengths because I think that it's funny how hard it is to, I think what we do is it be, if something comes easy to us, we assume it comes easy to everyone right. because we only have the benefit of our own lens. So, so we feel like, you know, we're stating the obvious or, or, or something like that. And I think that it's really hard to be able to look at something to, to zoom out and look at yourself that way. It is really hard. And one of the things that for your listeners, um, your audience, I would say is, that's why listening to compliments becomes really important because, um, because again, we deflect them. And so if you're, I would issue um, an invitation to all of your listeners is for the next couple of days, every time any compliment comes in, instead of just brushing it off, which we do almost within seconds, like we don't even remember what the compliment is, is pull out your phone and write it down on your phone. And then over, you know, the subsequent week, be like, Huh, that's interesting. So these people are giving these me these compliments completely unsolicited. They're telling me that that's my superpower. And it can be anything. It could be that you have nice eyes. Like it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to be your superpower. And so then the question is, and the reason I said nice eyes is, well, someone tells you you have nice eyes, then you should probably be doing sales calls in person, not on the phone, right? Because then it doesn't yes. do you any good. So, so there's, you know, whatever those strengths are, you've got to figure out a way to use them and leverage them because you're not going to be successful in your business if you're not willing to leverage what you do uniquely and innately and inherently well. Okay. Well, I think um, that's super motivating. And I think some more motivation that came out of that book for me is that you talk about how a lack of money and a lack of experience can actually be to our benefit. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm going to give you a go back to the example, I think, um, uh, earlier when we were talking about the book, Dare Dream Do. So um, uh, when I... Um, Early on on my blog, so this is probably like 2008 maybe, so 
oh, wow, is it really that long ago? It's been almost 10 years ago. Anyway, so I decide that I want to um, get some advertising to get people to come to my blog because, you know, writing about dreams was kind of playing where no one else is playing. It didn't fit into any certain sector. I'm like, I want to, I want to buy some advertising. So I bought advertising on Design Mom. And I don't know if you know that blog, but I bought some advertising there. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to buy advertising that I got to have more content. And right now I'm only blogging like twice a week. So... I had this constraint of time and I thought, all right, well, I'm going to invite women to write guest essays to basically share the stories of their dreams and not just women, also men too, but mostly women. And so my constraint of not having time, but having bought this advertising turned into having women write these beautiful essays about what they were dreaming of doing. And those essays are really fundamental to the book Dare Dream Do. And they made that book so much richer, so much richer because it was not the story of my dream, but the story of 50 different people's dreams. And so everybody who reads that book could find themselves there. And so that was a great example or is a great example of turning your constraint, my lack of time into a tool of creation by having all of a sudden all these wonderful essays and stories um, that made the argument of that book much, much more compelling. Ah, I love it. And, you know, and now people do that, but I think you were one of the first people to do that. Like uh, Gretchen, who wrote the Happiness Rubin. Project. Uh-huh. Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen yeah. Rubin. So she did that, but you did it way before she did. Uh, that's a great example. Okay. So I would say that your three books actually are kind of like an entrepreneurship. I mean, you could say business, but I'm going to say entrepreneurship, an entrepreneurship kit. Uh, because like, let's say the first one is about the dream. The second one is about like disrupting yourself and chasing down the dream and making it happen and, and, and executing your third book now is bringing all that to a business. So now you've got a thing that maybe you've scaled. And so build an A team, play to their strengths and lead them up the learning curve is going to be. So most, most of my listeners are probably going to be looking at this more from a solopreneur, very small business perspective. They're working with small teams, virtual teams. Okay. And so I'm wondering, that's like, helpful. yeah, we can, yeah, it, yeah, it applies. So, okay. so let me talk about the basic premise of it. And then, um, so, so here you are and you're like, okay, I want to build a business and I've got maybe two or three people working for me. And the way that build an A team applies is I talked about the learning curve earlier the way, so two things. Number one is that you, you optimize for innovation by having people at different points along the learning curve. But I think the way it really applies to a solopreneur or someone who's working with three or four people, even if they're, you know, 1099, so they're not all full time, is to recognize that everybody you work with is on a learning curve, including you. And so the question becomes is how do you make sure that you, every single person you hire, ideally you'll hire some people at the low end of the learning curve, but when you're a solopreneur or, you know, small group, you're going to tend to be hiring freelancers who you want to be at the top of the curve because you're hiring them for their expertise and you're good. You know, you want them to do one specific thing and they're done. The thing that you'll find though is like, for example, I have a woman who I work with who does a lot of writing and she's a great writer. 
The thing, and she worked with me, did a lot of editing on my book, Build an A-Team. Well, by the time the book was over, she's like, Whitney, I am so sick of writing about learning curves. I am just (laughs) sick of it. And I was like, okay, well, can you edit this one thing? And she's like, Whitney, I'm at the top of my curve. I'm like, okay, so what do I do here, right? Because she's a great writer. I want to continue to work with her. But if I keep just giving her top of the curve stuff, she's not going to want to work with me anymore. I have to figure out a way to allow her to go back to the low end of the learning curve. So what it, what was that signal for me? It meant and has meant and is meaning in real time, I have to start bringing one or two people along that can be at the low end of the learning curve for whom it will be exciting to write about building an A-team because it's brand new to them. They're very, very new to the process. And then at the same time, give this other woman, her name is Heather, an opportunity to work on projects and write about things that are new to her, do research around, you know, what we might do for our next book, etc. And so for the people who are listening to this, I think this is a great example of how you can apply this is if you find people who are really good, how do you make sure that they want to continue working for you? Um, they, they're going to get bored if it's only at the top of the curve. So there are ways and things that you might need to do in order to continue to have them be excited and, and give them new projects. Yeah, I love it. I, I actually have a, um, a small uh, mini course that's how to hire and train and work with your first virtual assistant before you think you need one. And um, and it really is a challenge because a lot of this work is kind of mundane, right? It's kind of monotonous. But I've found some like fun tricks to do oh, sure what you're them. talking about. I mean, if it's only like giving them, you know, buying an online course, like what do you want to learn? And then buying them an online course, they learn it, they become experts in that. It sort of builds up their own, um, their own resume for later. But then I also get to benefit from that expertise in my own business and I don't have to learn it myself, more importantly. And, uh, and also like I have an outstanding, uh, person who works with me and she's in the Philippines and we're working on her visa now to uh, come with me to social media marketing world. Um, and so she's thrilled to death. And so that's she fantastic. feels more like a partner yeah. than, yeah. You know, and that's a an great assist- example of being willing to lead them up the learning curve is making it possible for her to have other opportunities. Awesome. Okay. Now what we're going to do is because these questions don't really fit anywhere else. So we're just going to okay, call perfect. it kind of yep. rapid fire. Okay. If you could go back in time and tell the 20 year old Whitney something, what would you, what would you Um, say? I would say, don't be so afraid. (laughs) It will be okay. Um, (laughs) I think that I just was so afraid. And, um, I mean, I guess, so that would be the thing that I would say. The irony of all that is, is that the work that I now do is really, I, you know, I want people to understand that in order for us to be happy, we have to be willing to change and we're all terrified of change. And so the work I do is to try to make it safe for people to change, whether you're an individual or an organization. But I would love to be able to just tell my 20 year old self, you know, don't, it's going to be okay. Like you can figure this out and you will be okay. Yeah, there's so much truth the older I get in that quote that youth is wasted (laughs) on the young because we become so much like we yes. become so much more yeah. fearless as we get older and we care less about the little, the minutia, but I guess you just have to live it to, to get to that point. Um, okay. What's your favorite oh, business book? My favorite business book. Um, I would say, well, one, obviously the innovators dilemma by Clayton Christensen. I think that's been the most um, formative mm-hmm. for me. 
a book that I really loved. I'm going to give you two. One is actually, I'm going to give you that I've recently been reading. I don't, I can't do favorite. Um, but I really loved the excellence dividend by Tom Peters. And then I'm going to give you two books by women. Cause I don't want to just talk about books by men. Um, I really loved growth okay. IQ by Tiffany Bova. It's excellent. And I think it will be very useful for your particular audience. And I also loved off the clock by Laura Vanderkam. And it doesn't sound like it's a business book, but it is definitely a business book. It's about productivity and how to really use your time productively and make it feel like you have more time, which I think is definitely relevant to a um, small business owner. So those are the four books I would recommend. Outstanding. All right. Speaking of productivity, do you have a morning routine? I do. It, it, it's, it's a little bit difficult because, you know, I travel all the time for work. Um, but there are a few things that I do every single morning, um, whether I get up at 4 a.m., whether I get up at 6 a.m. I pull out my phone um, and I plug in my headphones and I listen to scripture. I listen to scripture first. I then listen to an motivational, inspirational talk that has a religious or gospel study based because I'm a very devout Christian. And then after that, I'll listen to something that might be motivational. Like um, uh, uh, I'm listening to a course right now called Lead the Field from Bob Proctor. So those are three things that I'll do immediately, oftentimes before I even get out of bed. Then I'll meditate. I use the Headspace app. So that's like my first hour. Um, and then I've been doing um, like 10 push-ups every day. And I've gotten to the point that I can now do 10 push-ups. I started like doing them on the counter, but I was like, oh, I'm going to do 10 push-ups every day. And now I can actually do 10. In fact, yesterday I was speaking somewhere. It was a really small group and they're like, yeah, sure. They made me in the middle of our conversation, get on the floor and do the 10 push-ups. And I did yeah, it. Well, Happy to report. You know, when I run into you, I, I'm totally going <laughs> to ask you to please get down and give me 10. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then it'll be 20. Exactly. Um, Oh yeah, maybe I need to up it. But that's, those are things I would say I do basically without fail every day. And can I tell you like push-ups, there was this woman one time at a wedding, I'll never forget. And she was easily in her fifties. And I was like, how'd you get those guns? I mean, she had m these incredible biceps and she said, I do 15 push-ups every morning. As soon as it, the first thing, when I get out of bed, I do 15 push-ups. And she said, that's all she did. So I'm a believer in the push-ups. I also love the Headspace app. Okay. What excites you about the times that we're living in right now? Oh, you know, there is so much opportunity. There's so much opportunity. Um, I'm a big believer in the law of physics of that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, which means that there are a lot of really difficult things happening. But because of that law of physics, it means there's a lot of amazing and wonderful, wonderful things happen. And, and so I get excited about um, just the other day, I was at, out at Singularity University, and they were talking about how within a not too distant future, we're going to all have avatars like I could have have an avatar that if I had to, I could on this podcast, have the avatar do the podcast. I mean, that's probably going a little far maybe, but like on my computer, I could have, you know, an avatar that talks to people and answer questions. Like that's so exciting that there's going to be that much learning taking place that that can happen. So we literally will be able to clone ourselves at least to a, a, a slight degree. And that is really exciting. Listen, 
you said sing- you had me at Singularity University. I almost fell off of my chair. Um, I I want to go there so badly. And you know, several years ago, I worked on a project with my son, who at the time was in fifth grade, and we emailed Ray Kurzweil, the father of this. Oh, I loved that book. Movement. Yeah, and he he totally corresponded with us for a long time, and he sent me a tran- a manuscript that he's to date never published that he signed for his 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 child. But yeah, and the documentary that they did, it was. Really amazing. I can't remember the name of it. Wow. Is it called Singularity? I haven't, I haven't seen it. I've read his book, The Singularity is Near, which I think he has another book coming out or a 10 year edition or something coming out in the, in the not too distant future. So that should be really good. Yeah. He's an amazing guy. Okay. Uh, the other thing kind of like really way out on left field, but you are a LinkedIn, you're a LinkedIn influencer, but more importantly, you are a LinkedIn rock star. And I actually um, show you as an example to my students on a regular basis of smart, the smart way to use LinkedIn. I especially love what you've been doing with video. So you, you will talk about a book and you'll, t- you'll bring one thing out of the book and you'll talk for maybe two minutes. It's not highly produced, but it's produced enough so that it looks quality and professional. Do you have any tips or anything you want to share about how using LinkedIn has benefited you if it has? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first of all, thank you. Um, I, the way I use LinkedIn, um, it's mostly, and you're reminding me that I need to go on there and, and have some conversations with people. Um, I would say that I use it to be able to be connected with people, you know, to stay in touch with people. So it's become basically my virtual Rolodex. So that's one way I use it. Another way I use it is that it's become my resume. I mean, your website's your resume, but I think also your LinkedIn profile is very much your resume. And then another way I use it is to be able to communicate with people and have conversations. I found that the long form pieces, people aren't really responding to at this point. It's much more the short form conversations. Um, and and you reminded me that I haven't talked about a book recently, so I need to do that. Um, but that's really, it's its an online Rolodex. It's a way to stay in touch with people. It's a way to have conversation. And it's its also basically a, a virtual version of your resume. So those are all different ways to use it. Um, what I will say is I find, and I don't know if other people that are listening find this, is that I, I can tell when people are kind of roboting me in terms of to, to LinkedIn profile, but when people write a genuine note and it doesn't even have to be long, like three sentences of like, I want to connect for this reason because I read this that you did or this is interesting. Every single time I connect, it only takes like three sentences of genuine interest in another person's work. And they're almost always going to connect, at least in my experience. That's a great tip. So Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, if you want to learn more about Whitney, head over to Whitney, Whitney Johnson.com. She's got loads of goodies over there. You could check out her podcast, disrupt yourself. You could find disrupt yourself. You can find that anywhere you get your podcasts. And this has been incredible, Whitney. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jen. It has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. For all the show notes and the books that Whitney mentioned and a link to her website, head over to jenlaner.com forward slash 18. You need to spell out the word 18. And also remember that the Front Row Entrepreneur podcast is brought to you by my free online community for entrepreneurs called the Front Row. If you'd like to join us, just head over to frontrowclassroom.com and I look forward to seeing you there. See you next time.